Hey guys, Charlie here. A quick reminder before we kick off today's episode that Will and I are coming back to the live stage April 7th at the Basement Comedy Club in Melbourne. We're doing another TOEFOP Live. It'll be me, it'll be Will, it'll be special guest Dixie, most likely, and you'll want to be there. There's a link in the episode description, so check it out once you've listened to this awesome show. A listener production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Hey everyone, relax. This is Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's guest is the brilliant Moshe Kasher. Moshe has written a new book. It's called Subculture Vulture, uh, a memoir in six scenes. You're going to love it. Uh, I listened to the audio version of the book and I highly do recommend that because I highly, I highly do recommend that. I highly recommend that because Moshe has a beautiful voice and a great way of... Uh, living inside your head when he's taking you into these various scenes. We talk a lot about the book in this uh, episode, so I am not going to bang on about it heaps here at the start, but Moshe is one of the best comedians going around. Uh, He also has a podcast, The Endless Honeymoon, with his wife, Natasha Legero, uh, which you can also check out. Uh, And yeah, it's great chat. Uh, I'm doing some shows as well. In fact, I am about to start my brand new tour that I'm going to be doing for the next couple of years. So very first night of that is at the Adelaide Fringe Monday, March the 4th, two weeks at the Adelaide Fringe. Uh, Then uh, Canberra Comedy Festival, Melbourne Comedy Festival, Brisbane, Sydney, and a whole bunch of other places are all already on sale. We had an extra show in Perth. Uh, we're close, I think, uh, close to selling out a couple of the Brisbane shows already. So get in quick if you want to come to them. But Adelaide in particular, uh, this is, yes, a new show, brand new show uh, that I am hopefully going to be doing for the next couple of years, both in Australia and then overseas. And it's got to start somewhere. And it's <laughs> somewhere it starts is Adelaide. On Monday night and I love the audiences that come at the start because you get to see the show as it was in my head, the show as I have put it all together and how I think it should work and how I think it should link together and of course that will not all be true. It will be some percentage of true and uh, on Monday onwards at the Adelaide Fringe in a tent in the gardens I get to decide along with the audience, uh, how how right I am and how wrong I am and go go about fixing the bits that I was wrong about. But I'm very excited to show this show to people and um, I love the people in particular who are willing to take that risk and come out and see it at the very start on the very first night or the first couple of nights. It is also much cheaper on those nights for good reason sometimes, but... Sometimes you're actually getting, you know, something amazing. You get the version of the show that is in my head onto the paper directly to you. And um, I think there's something interesting and special about that. So I hope you will come and join me uh, for that show. And I hope you'll come and join me somewhere in Australia or all over the world as I bring this show uh, around to you over the next 24 months or so. But it all starts 
in a few days from now. We have some other podcasts. They're all here on the, in this feed now. Everyone relaxes the name of the feed. You can find philosophy episodes. You can find episodes of Tofot with Friends uh, next week. A former philosophy guest will be my Tofot with Friends guest, Laurie Kilmartin. She has a new special out. It's absolutely brilliant, as always, as is all of Laurie's stuff. So uh, look out for that one. Our AFL adjacent podcast, Two Guys, One Cup, is back in the Everyone Relax feed. We are currently doing our nonsensical season preview and getting ready for the AFL season. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening in the feed, some podcast crossovers, all sorts of things for you to check out. So I hope you're enjoying those. If you do enjoy them, uh, you can support our Patreon. Um, all the details will be in the show notes, I imagine, rather than me trying to <laughs> tell you everything. All the details will be in links below. I say that in the hope that that will actually be true. All right. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Moshe Kasher. Everyone relax, this is uh, Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how my show begins. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? I'm Moshe Kasher. Um, do you need me to tell you any more than that? I mean, we've got time. We'll explore it all, Moshe Kasher. I mean, I am overqualified because I know who you are. I know who you are in real life and I've just read your fantastic new book which told me even more about who you are and who you've been at various stages of your life but yeah for the audience like if I if you if you know if you've run into somebody in this situation and they say who are you Moshe Kasher like what what do you normally say I mean you know you've broken it down into six parts of your life and six subcultures in your book but I'm we'll we'll explore that I'm asking for a pithier straight to the point version here I guess well, yeah, I guess that is the great question that was raised that caused me to write this book in the first place is like the answer to that question, who are you really? Like, I guess if somebody asked me, if you had asked me the first time we met in sunny Los Angeles, I would say I'm a comedian, I'm an author, sometimes I'm an actor. Uh, but I guess the answer is so shattered uh, in my real life that I had to parse it out into six universes that I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I'm the sum of my parts and those parts, um, have meant the world to me. And so I wrote a book about each one of those worlds that fit together to create me. But the answer to your question is I'm Moshe Kasher, comedian, writer, and, uh, all around great guy. Now we're talking about uh, the book is Subculture Vulture is the name of the book. And then it's got a um, colon and then it's something else. What's the something else? A memoir in six scenes. Okay. Well, that, there you go. Now, was this? this I, I'm, I'm interested in titles. I'm, I'm very interested. Well, my in old, my first book had a much uh, yeah. more of a tongue twister for its subtitle. It was Casher in the Rye, the true t- colon. I know that you're a stickler about colons, Will. Colon, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned sixteen. And Subculture Vulture really is the answer to people who have written over the years after reading the first one, which is what happened next. And the answer was kind of everything. I mean, a lot of things did happen. This story, yeah, because your first story is very much about the fact that you, you know, like have, have had led this life that had led you to become a drug addict, uh, well, an, an addict and then sober, like by the time that you were like, you know, the the sort of age that most people started to you know, dip their toe into that water for the very first time. And so you'd packed a lot into those first 15 or so years and you'd managed to pack enough in that you could write an entire book 
um, about that experience. So I was really interested when I like started listening to the, the new book because I was like, how do you follow that? How do you explain what happened in somebody's life when, you know, so much was packed into such an early age? And one of the things that I, I read your first book as well, which I, I very much enjoyed, but I was telling you before we started this, just how, how much I loved this new book. I think it's so good. Like it's, I mean, it, it's a good book by a comedian about their life, but it is about so much more than that. There is, you know, the right amount of history. There is um, the right amount of history to give context. And then there is so much good context, right? That's the thing that I was left with the most about this because you break down your life into, you know, the various communities, whether it might be AA or Burning Man or rave culture or comedy and, and you know, your Jewishness. These are the, the areas of your life that you explore. And in each one, I really felt like I learned so much about those various worlds and afterwards, I was like, well, there's a bit of history in it. Like, you know, you, you lead us through enough of what we need to know. But it, it had that real sense to me of the, the, a bit of the scroll at the start of Star Wars where it's like, here's what you need to know about the universe that we're in. And now I'm going to tell you a specific story about me as the lead character as I take you through what my view is of this world, you know. I've given you an outside view of the inside and now you're going to get a very inside view outwards discuss well, it's funny <laughs> it's well it's funny that it's funny that you mentioned star wars because to me one of the the biggest revelations and i feel like this you know this was for me my book of revelations like it this was a discovery that i i came to towards the end of the book like i was wondering when i started putting pen to paper i guess finger to keyboard at the beginning of this book like what what is the through line like I've lived these disparate lives, these sort of puzzle pieces that don't feel like they fit together. And the obvious answer, but it wasn't obvious when it came to me emotionally, was like the through line is me, you know, is that these random, seemingly unconnected worlds, some of them more connected than others, obviously Burning Man and Raves are not a world apart, but certainly, you know, AA and Burning Man or Hasidic Judaism and the rave scene, they don't fit in this way except in me in my body and in and 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 without all of these universes you don't get the result the, that is me and you know memoir is nothing if not a narcissist's art form you know it's like i mean there's also stand up which we we discuss in the book which is like w- what hubris to say you know what make a great night out me just my musings just some thoughts I have about the world like it's unbelievable to me that stand up is an entertaining art form and yet and yet it is but the the Star Wars thing, that was another realization, is that over and over again, I had the, in my life, I have had this experience of feeling like I was weak and powerless and all alone and had nothing in the universe except my shitty circumstances, my desert planet and my uncles and aunts, you know. And then all of a sudden, a weird man in a robe taps me on the shoulder and says... If you walk through this door, if you get on this ship, if you come through this wardrobe, there's another universe waiting for you. And and not only is that universe there, but inside of that universe, you are 
you have superpowers that you never even dreamed about. Like you didn't know that you're a mighty warrior, you're a Jedi Knight, you're a king, you're a queen, you're a witch, you just walk this way. And over and over again, I had this experience in life of walking through one of those doors, not knowing what was on the other side and like opening up to see, oh my God, my people are here. And that to me is what the book's about. And yet when I talked about context, what I mean, I think is, that you are the context, you know, that, that all stories are, of course, subjective in their nature. If somebody else told you what their experience of the rave scene or the Hasidic Jew scene or whatever it might be, right, it's going to be a different perspective. But that you have a curiosity that I was – do you know Ben Lee, the, the musician Ben Lee? I was, yeah. I was talking to Ben Lee. He's joined a couple of cults over the years, self-confessed. Uh-huh. And <laughs> sure. I had a sense of that when I was reading this, that there's an openness to joining something or pursuing something or walking into something not knowing where it's going to lead that is a bit of a through line, you know, in every aspect of your life and of your world. So wait, what's that? Where does that come from? And And, you know... What's that about? Well, I think I think that that the answer to that is how do people who do people recruit for real cults? It is always shattered people. I mean, Jim Jones famously went to AA meetings to recruit for his um, his summer camp. You know, I, I think that being shattered really helps because one of the primary experiences of being a shattered person is saying, "I don't know what to do. My life is in pieces." Is there any way to put this together? And cults, real cults, destructive cults, that's their primary answer. Also, benign cults and religions, that's their answer. We, you don't know what to do? We're, we are tell you what to do incorporated. Like, we've got you. And so I found myself at 15, like, that's the, the other quite real revelation that I had. I don't join these universes as strongly or as un, uh, uh, without any wariness as I, as I did without being a 15-year-old drug addict who looks at my circumstances of my life at 15 and go and, and realize, like, I've got nothing. Like, I have no answers. I haven't got anything figured out. I, the only hope here is to put myself in the hands of someone else and hope that they can sort it out. And again and again and again, they did. And so I think that's why I joined with such unreservedness is because I didn't, I had beaten the reservedness out of me and I really was a blank slate. When you sat down to write this book, because I, I am fascinated by the idea of it being split into the, the six parts and them all being equally, I was saying this to you before we started, but the, I, I didn't want this to come across the wrong way. I just assume that if somebody says, here's these six things that are vaguely, you know, I'm going to explore these six areas, there are just going to be some of them. And it's not necessarily even the fault of the author themselves. Just out of, if you name me any six things, I've already got a ranking in my head of which of those things I think I'm more or less interested in, right? Like, <laughs> well, sure. What was your top rank? What do you think you were going to love the most going in? Well, you know what? Funnily enough, of course, like I was most curious. Well, there was actually there was two areas that I initially was most curious about. I'm always fascinated to hear you talk about comedy. I've heard you talk about comedy in, you know, a whole bunch of different forums, podcasts, and you know, in person over the years. And so I was, I knew that if you were going to talk about comedy, there would be things within that 
that I would be interested and curious to hear about. And there was, and I thought your discussion of some, there was one particular thing where I was like, yeah, I think that all the time, which is the, when was this glorious period where comedians were allowed to say whatever they wanted all the time? Oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, do, I mean, that, even, can you talk about that for a second while we're here? Well, that's a revelation that really comes from the book, uh, The Comedians by Cliff Nesteroff, because he does a meticulous job of, of, uh, outlining the history of, uh, of, of comedy in general and stand-up in general, but in particular, this he's got a new book out uh, that is specifically about this, about the culture war in comedy. And there was a part in there that like really stuck out to me, which is Groucho Marx, this is 100 years ago, talking about what was a trend in comedy at the time. These, they were uh, ethnic comedians. And these were very specific ethnicities, by the way. These were not... As I say in the book, this is not like broad, hacky racism, the way that we think about race today. It's like black and white. No, no, no. These were like nuanced versions of racism. It was like it would be an hour and a half of a Swedish impersonator of a Swedish immigrant and then, a, and then an hour of a Welsh immigrant. And then an hour, I mean, it was just everything was so specific. And Groucho Marx came out and said, we got to stop this ethnic um, this ethnic humor. It's It's destructive and it's painful. And then someone else said, you know, well, we're, the Swedish community never gets upset about when people make fun of us. And Groucho Marx said it's different when it's black, when, when it's uh, the black community, when it's the Jewish community, because you're not affected by this kind of uh, discrimination in your day to day life. And it struck me like that's the same. It's the same conversation that we're having now, which is. The context of edgy and ethnic humor depends on the context of the person who's being made fun of. It's the same idea of punching up as we understand it today, a hundred years ago. And so we have been having this conversation, as I say in the book, over and over again, forgetting that we had it in the first place and then pretending that in the old days, everything was great and we're the first people to be ever plagued by such concerns. Yeah, the thing that uh, like amuses me when I think, when you know, because like obviously... I'm somebody who talks for a living and you are engaged in the debate of, you know, what is appropriate or not appropriate all the time by the very nature of, as you said, saying, here's what, how I've decided I'm going to pay my bills by being yeah. interesting enough that I can con, you know, before when you talked about that idea of the, you know, stand up comedy and, and what it is that, um, you know, it is the most narcissistic of all professions that you're saying, I believe that what I have to say is of value. I always like to add a caveat in my own mind because, of course, you know, you're, you're talking about yourself in those where I'm like, is that me or is it like, I think th that's me to a certain extent and then there's the bit of me which is like, or I have realized at some point that I think I can con other people into believing that what I'm doing is a job because I think that a lot of the time, even I don't believe that what I have to say is worth saying. But what I do believe is I don't believe in the product, but I believe in my capacity to sell the product to people. Oh, you're a snake oil salesman. <laughs> and I think that's us. I mean, that's what, that's one of the points that I make in, in the book that I, I think I, I, I love this idea that people think, you know, there's this oft, uh, um, bandied about idea that comedians are the new philosophers, right? Which I always like to ask people that say that, oh, who are some of your favorite of the old philosophers? <laughs> I, I, I don't feel that you've delved too deeply into the, into the classics, friend. And, nor have I, by the way. But like even the people that we love and think of as philosophical comedians, if I use the example of like George Carlin, 
George Carlin didn't come up with anything. Nothing he said uh, was the first time a person had said censorship is wrong. These ideas are wrong. There was some boring tome in an academic uh, lecture about censorship that covered what Carlin was doing. Uh, but what Carlin did and what comedians do is we take these ideas that we're, ban- we're working with and somehow, and against all odds, if you're a comedian as sophisticated as George Carlin, I, by the way, am not, somehow transform it into entertainment. Like, that's the impressive feat. It's not the idea itself. It's that a big idea can be dumbed down enough to make a crowd of 2,000 people laugh at the idea of anti-censorship or laugh at these ideas. And to me, that's like, that's the superpower of stand-up. Yeah, I think essentially you're absolutely right. And I always laugh too when people talk about the, um, you know, because this show is literally called Willosophy and it's you know, meant yeah. to be a joke. That's why it's called Willosophy with Will Anderson. Like, I mean, it's meant to be, yeah. you're meant to think it's ridiculous, right? And uh, the the idea of the, it being new thought is to miss the point entirely, right? Like the, the, what are a comedian's very good at is going, oh, wow, that's incredible the way that you've thought about this world person who's thought about this in a proper way. And you've managed to get that down to 100,000 words to really make that point. I reckon I can get that done in 30 seconds. I yeah, think and I you're can gonna just have, punch this up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're going to have two laughs in that 30 seconds <laughs> yeah. too. Somehow there's a math to it. But yeah, I mean, what is the ultimate, the ultimate thing you want to see from an audience um, other than them taking their tops off is – you look down and see the audience nudging each other. They're laughing and they're going, yes, we said that. Like, we think that. That's just like us. Like, to me, that is, that's the ultimate, is when the audience goes, here's an idea that I haven't found out how to articulate. And how is he making me or she making me laugh while while they bring that idea over? And to me, there is really great value. I mean, I guess that's the thesis of the stand-up part is that the value of stand-up is making people laugh and making people kind of – I know that that's not a, a huge swing, but I feel like it gets short shrift. Like there's so much uh, hand-wringing about like what is the job of the comedian and it seems so obvious to me. Like I reject the idea that Steve Martin and George Carlin – are qualitatively different. They're the same. They just, one guy's got a, a bow and arrow through his head and one guy is talking about censorship, uh, but it's all kind of the same job. It, I knew that that chapter would be fascinating to me for those reasons, but the one that I think going into it I was most interested in was um, was definitely the Burning Man chapter because I knew that you'd had such a long association with Burning Man. And as somebody who... I think if it had been the right time where my paths had crossed with Burning Man, you know, the right time for Burning Man, the right time for me, there would have been a real period in my life where I could have imagined that that would be something I would have really dug. And by the time I got an opportunity to go, it felt like my time and its time had kind of missed each other. And so, you know, I was really keen to see what your perspective was, which I knew wouldn't be the modern day cynical take on Burning Man, which was not really, I, I can read enough of that online and on social media and stuff about how it's no good anymore. Like that just reminds me that, I, you know, that, that, that my time for it might've passed, but you've had like a long association with this. I mean, long association with this festival. Well, I've been going, yeah, I've, I've been there since it was cool. 
and and I have watched its arc into this thing that people decided wasn't cool anymore. I've been going since 1996, and I was 16 years old. I was probably uh, I was almost 17, I think, and I and I was uh, a, probably about a year clean and sober. And I was a big rave guy at that point. And I heard that there was a rave in the desert. And that was enough for me to pack up a 1991 Ford Escort with like five other rave scumbags and pack into this car and drive out six hours into the desert to see what adventures awaited. And I I will say that when we got there, we got out of the car and it, it was immediately obvious that whatever this was, it was no rave. And I, speaking of context, I lacked context for what this was. It was a sort of ripping of the veil of Maya for me to walk through into this universe where there were people that were doing things that made no sense. And that was the sense of it. And to me, like the pointlessness was the point. And it was dangerous. It was scary. They were setting buildings on fire. There were drive-by shooting ranges. There were people setting themselves afire and slamming into a, 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 a wall filled with neon and then exploding that building. There was a statue of a woman spread eagle, with, which would spray water on you, which was my first female ejaculate shower, but not my last. Uh, it was a wild Bacchanalian. It was fucking pandemonium. Yes, there were raves. But mostly what there was was like danger and spectacle. And it was like being shot from a circus cannon into an M.C. Escher painting. And I had a experience that I've had again and again in the world, which is a, an, a, a, a kind of instant transformative molecular reconfiguration where I was like, these are the people that I want to be around. These are the freaks. And I love the freaks and I want to and I want and I think part of it is that I was born to worlds of outsiders. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But the worlds I was born into, they were outsiders. And I saw these outsiders as my kin. Um, and then, yes, over the years, you know, the best quote I have heard is that people say Burning Man has moved slowly from a p- place where weird people went to feel normal to a place where normal people go to feel weird. And that is true. But it's also not. And also, you know, it's probably still good that some normal people want to go and feel weird every now and again. Well, there's an in there's a, a baked in elitism in that kind of critique of Burning Man, which is like this isn't shouldn't be for normal people. It should only be for people that are cool enough to understand it. But then there's also this kind of pragmatic reality, which is, you know, I'm now t- last year was 24 years in. Like, yeah, you don't really want to see like a Coachella sort of flip-flop bro vibe everywhere you turn. You don't want this thing that started as a participatory mandate. And I would say that was that was definitely the the, the biggest mandate when I first started going, uh, which was you must participate. If you are if you don't participate, there is no experience, there is nothing happening. Into a place that slowly, you know, the participators are, you know, a smaller and smaller slice of the pie and the ultimate slur at Burning Man is to be called a spectator. It's the people that just go to watch and see what the freaks are up to. And so do you think that like, I mean, it sounds like, and particularly having just read the book, but like just in general, it feels like you are a participator. Like where does that, where does that come from? Because like, I think maybe 
you know, this. I think my version, I, I was happy with you going to Burning Man and you told me a few stories and then I'm like, that's good. I feel like I've been to Burning Man now. That's that's all I really needed from that. I, I can I can read that from the comfort of my own home and imagine what it would have like, been like for me. I've, I've done drugs. I've been in the desert, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> You're like, I'm Australian. It's close enough. <laughs> yeah. I've seen things burn, you know. Yeah, sure. I think I can put most, from from Moshe's words, I can put the rest of it together. I've been in a long car line. I know what these things are like. I think like, yeah, I understand your point, but I also think if there's something magical and in ineffable, I think that's a word, about this, exp- in particular, Burning Man, when it has power, when it, when it, when it's meaningful and it's magic, it's primordial magic that it started with, is doing any of its work. It's about experiencing this thing, this sort of, they call it cu- culture jamming. I mean, do you want a quick run through of the history? I mean, I, it, I, I, I personally don't need it because I've read your book. I know you don't. However, but, like for the but you're the maestro of this, this podcast, yeah. No, yeah, of course. I mean, you're just a, you're just doing very good podcast guesting at the moment. Like <laughs> you go into things, you, I ask you a question and you've been like doing nice little background, you're putting the story, like talking about context, you're the context king. Well, listen, my next book is entirely about the experience of being on podcasts, yeah. and I think it's going to be a really <laughs> scintillating read. I think your listeners are going to really like that. Well, okay, I'll do it quickly. <laughs> By the way, that was going to be one of my questions was, was there a seventh topic that didn't make the cut for the top six, and was it I, how I to be on a podcast? No, I don't think anybody would turn a page. I do have an answer to that. You want me? I, 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 I I, I thought about surfing. I, listen, this is Australian yeah. listeners. Oh, yes. my God. I thought about surfing, but I realized each of these worlds, I'm not an expert, but I got I got skin in the game. Like, I have extreme skin in the game with each of these worlds. Surfing, I love maybe more than anything, but I'm pretty fucking bad at it. And I just don't <laughs> think that there's an appetite for the kook's history of the sport of kings. So I decided against that. And then there was another one, which I thought would have been really interesting, but I'm very glad that I decided not to do it, which was, you know, immediately prior to the the rave, right in between AA and rave, I was, um, I don't even know if you have these in Australia, but I was... Uh, a extremely racially confused young white man. Mm-hmm. Like I was, um, I had a Southern accent. I'm, I'm, I'm not from the South, Will. I've never been to the South. Mm-hmm. I had affected it. I had just absorbed it from the gangster, the copious amounts of gangster rap that I had been listening to. And I would code switch. I would, I would be talk, I would talk one way to my brother and then the phone would ring and I'd pick up the phone and be like, hello, hell yeah, you know, we're just out here chilling. All right. Okay, cool. Peace. And then I turn back to my brother like, anyway, what were we talking about? And he's like, what the fuck is that? You know? So I thought it could be interesting to do a history of white people pretending to be black. And then I thought, I don't think the world needs to read that book. And I don't think anybody's interested in me writing that. So I'm glad I sidestepped that. It could have been a, a major landmine on the way. <laughs> but I do, I mean, it, it, it's funny. I know why it fits in the story of your life because you hint at it anyway. And it's that idea of you were looking for, you know, a uniform. Like you said, you were looking for something to try on, you know, something to give your life meaning. And, you know, 
it's funny. I literally was in the lift listening. I was listening to your book, um, the audio book, as I was I was in Newcastle in Australia doing some gigs. And Pink, the artist Pink, is um, yeah in Newcastle at the same time. And in the hotel, one of the he was like I, again didn't talk to him about this. So this is maybe an over over generalization. But I, he was there with Pink. You could tell he was part of the crew. Looked like a dancer or a singer, like, you know, a cool looking like black guy. Yeah. And just, he, he copped me in the lift and he was like, like looked at my like LA hat and looked at my big, like, you know, jacket that I was wearing and my like Nikes, like high tops that I was wearing and like just completely did a number on me. Like as we took this lift down in this hotel about me being dressed like I was, you know, in NWA back in the day. Yeah, 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 like sure. This, you, you know, you got a you got a strong yeah right vibe from him. Yeah, but no, he was uh, cool, but it was you know, but he was but he was definitely giving <laughs> me shit about it. You know what I mean? Like he commented on it, and then we laughed about it, but it was definitely noticeable. And and you know, you you talk about it, a lot about like the fashion choices that you would make in this book, like early on that you literally do talk about that idea of you, that you change from that outfit that you were wearing into this rave culture outfit that you also then put on and became part of that community. So when you went to those places, you put on these outfits and you put on these uniforms. That was part of the symbol well, of it. I mean, quite literally, I, I, I yes, sartorially, I would make a, a transformation. Literally, I would go, from dressing one way to, particularly after the rave, my first rave, to doing away with all of my old gear and going and saying, I have a new identity now and I'm going to dress up in the costume for it. I mean, the theme to me that I'm hearing now that we're talking about it in this way is like anybody but me, you know, anybody but me, any identity but the one that I was born into. I mean, that is what drugs did for me when I was like 12 and 13 years old is it like took me out of the equation. I stopped thinking about me. And the, and the biggest problem leading up to it, uh, and, and, and I think probably like the, 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 the precursor to any teenage drug addiction story is just feeling like you don't belong. And I know, I know I'm not the first teenager that felt like I didn't belong. I mean, obviously that's not a unique story, but I had a particular version of that. You know, my mother and father were both deaf. I was born into the deaf world. Um, and so I was never deaf, obviously, but I was also never quite hearing either. I lived in straddling in these two worlds. And when my father and mother, uh, when my mother left my father, my dad became this like born again Hasidic Jew. And so I would go visit him for six weeks a year and do my summer vacation in Brooklyn and, you know, cosplay as Tevia the milkman for six weeks a year. Like, you know, I mean, to talk about a costume change, I would get off the plane and take off my, uh, take off my California, like, you know, board shorts and neon colored uh, T-shirts, put on slacks and a dress shirt, go to the Hasidic Jewish barbershop where he would try to give the sides of my California bowl cut like a little bit of heft on the side. So it looked like a the vaguest suggestion of uh, I had been growing out my side locks and I'd put on a velvet yarmulke and go truly in a costume, pretend to be something that I wasn't. And so... That all reached a fever pitch. And when I found the other people at my middle school in seventh grade who were the same as me, not in that they had the same circumstances as me, because I have yet to meet someone with exactly the same as me, but who had their own version of painful self-awareness, 
painful kind of like not good enoughness, painful I don't fitness, the other broken toys at the back of the school and they invited me back there to smoke a joint with them. I myself just like slipped away and I felt comfort maybe for the first time in my life. And so, yeah, I chased after new identities over and over again, uh, probably to get away from the, the pain of my own real identity. And I guess slowly walked into what that identity really was. So when's um, that? Because that's the interesting thing about, like, we'll get back to culture jamming. I'm, I actually am a yeah. good podcast host. I haven't forgotten that we were going to talk about that. <laughs> okay. but uh, um, I was about to pivot. I was about to be the best. I go, and that leads in so many ways to the history of Burning Man and what culture jamming really is. <laughs> Just a completely, it's like if you if you do a, a false transition, but if you make it wordy enough, people will kind of get lost in the saws and go, yes. I think there's a connection there. I mean, people are also not concentrating on this conversation as closely as the two of us are. Like <laughs> it is fair, on in the fair. background, they're driving somewhere, they're, they've yeah, missed yeah, a bit yeah. of it. It, it, yeah. We have to be interesting enough. They think it's worth rewinding to get back yeah, to sure. whatever that pivot was going to be. I'm interested in where in this process before we get back to culture jamming. Because because of the way the story is told, it's not told necessarily, uh, you know, chronologically. Some of these things overlap with each other, right? And so, right. I mean, in the case of like your connection with Burning Man, it's over, you know, more than half of your life. And so um, where do you think, if you're talking about that idea of trying on different uniforms and costumes and living lives, you know, dressed up as these people, when do they start to formulate into something that you could recognizes being Moshe? Well, I can, I can tell you that when I came into myself the most fully, um, or, or rather began to come into myself in a way that felt genuine, was after I got sober and after I had the transformative um, experience of the rave scene, that like without those two parts of my life, I could not have started this like straighter, more genuine, more me path. Um, Because what, and I know it's funny to even talk about raves in that way, because you, you know, you really think of them as this kind of like party thing, but you have to, you have to have had the life that I had prior to getting sober, where everything was a worship of like violence. Everything was all my friends were these like violent, fucked up criminals. And, you know, I mean, I have a memory of uh, a friend. We were all getting drunk and my friend was beating up this new guy that had come around. And I went over to stop him and I go, hey, man, don't beat up the new guy. I'm your friend. And he turned to me because I grabbed his shoulder. And he started beating me up. Mm. And I ran off crying because I was always like, I was always one punch away from tears, which was really hard as a young gangster. Uh, literally any, any physical contact, I would just be completely crying. I run <laughs> off screaming. He hit me. And I go to this little alley and I'm crying to myself. And then he comes in. And he goes, he's drunk. We're all drunk. And he's like, dude, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry I beat you up. And I go, well, you should be sorry. That was fucked up. And then he goes, the fuck are you yelling at me for? And he starts hitting me again. <laughs> he beat me up while he was apologizing for beat me, beating me up. These are the people that I came yeah. from. This is, my, this is my universe. So everything was like, you know, I, I remember we had this friend named Terry. And Terry, we used to hang out with. 
And, and we one time had a party at his house and we broke into his parents' house. I think like broke the lock, stole a bunch of antiques or something. Like, I don't know what happened. We fucked his house up. And Terry was like, I'm not hanging out with you guys anymore. And never did. And we used to talk about Terry like, damn, Terry's such a nerd. What a loser. Like, Terry couldn't hang with the life. Terry doesn't get it. And meanwhile, like, Terry's doing the normal thing. Like, he's like, you guys are violent and horrible. I'm not going to hang around with you anymore. Terry went on to become a veterinarian. He's having a great life. Like, all of us are, like, slipping into, like, mental institutions and criminality. And, like, Terry's just, like, out being a normal guy. So that's the backdrop, right? And... And then I went to, I, when I went to this rave for the first time, I'll, I'll fast forward. What raves did for me is if you've been to one, and I'm sure you have, Will, is like, you, you notice this like infantilized kind of like almost a caricature of softness and love, right? It's like people are dressed in baby clothes. They've got Mickey Mouse gloves on and cat in the hat hats. I used to bring a stuffed monkey puppet with me to a rave and I'd dance around with this monkey puppet and people have glow sticks and pacifiers. And the pacifier, honestly, is a bit of an embarrassing story for me personally, because people use pacifiers in the rave scene um, in order to stop the ecstasy from making them grind their teeth into little rave nubs. But I was clean and sober. So I just had one because I thought it looked really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I just thought it was like a cool statement. But... I think about that yeah. now. But that's what I like. You, we, we, if you go to something, you wear the costume regardless of, no, whether there's, <laughs> regardless of whether there's a purpose for the costume or not. You're in it, man. That's why when I started stand-up, I got an oversized sports coat yeah. and I rolled the sleeves up just to make sure people got where I was coming from. But, but I think about the rave thing is like it's such an – imposed infantilization, which was exactly the thing that I needed. Like I needed this second childhood, even though there were drugs and sex and we were dancing all night. Like that wasn't what, what did it for me. What did it for me was this feeling like I could be like cracked open and vulnerable and soft and have glitter in my hair and dye my hair blonde and, you know, scrunch it into little Bjork buns and like be this soft person that I never got the chance to be when I was a real kid. And so the pendulum swung so far into an absurd version of like being feminine and being soft and being like, like just a loving mushy kid that when the pendulum finally swung back, and this is probably after I stopped going to raves, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm sort of normal again. I'm like a person that can be soft, but also be masculine. I can be me. So that is where I feel like that came from. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I read those chapters, um, particularly the rave stuff, like with great interest because, oh, yeah, I've been to some raves before in my life, but like very much from the point of view of that, you know, there was a period of time in the sort of, you know, late 90s, early 2000s where, you know, like ecstasy costs like $3 and like, you know, <laughs> like you would go to a lot of raves or wherever there was ecstasy for $3. And um, to understand the appeal of, you know, necessary, there would be people that I imagine if they were fully grown and fully healed adults, if there is such a thing, the idea of going to a night sober where everybody else wasn't sober would be a real nightmare. But with your origin story and when you found it and what you were looking for, the idea that you're in a room full of people, as you said, 
who not only have this accoutrements of infantilization, right? You know, bright colors and soft things and are on a drug that literally just makes you want to touch and like things and people, right? Like, and not in an aggressive way, you know, like in a, you like the sensation of how something feels, you know, that is a, it's the ultimate of safe vibes, really. I mean, of course, the, you know, you know, of course, individual circumstances may vary, but yeah, sure, there general, is, there, there is peril. Sure, yes, sure. That's right. But as a, if you're talking about a general vibe and emotion of healing and love and sometimes oversimplistic healing and love, but exactly what you needed at that point in your life. Well, yeah, I didn't need a complex, honest version of lovingness. I needed, I needed a caricature. I mean, I'm struck even right now. Like why would a clean and sober person connect so deeply to people that are so far, far gone on drugs that they can barely like form a coherent sentence? I needed that version of lovingness. Everybody I was surrounded uh, with was almost a mirror opposite version of sort of violence and, and, and hatefulness that like, yeah, when I found a where a warehouse full of people and like who would hug me and who didn't even know me. I mean, that's a far cry from your best friend beating the shit out of you twice for right. trying not to get him to beat the shit out of somebody else. It's like a stranger loves yes. you love me. You don't even know me. That's this is the world that I needed. <laughs> so that that is a world that has some parallels, you know, with the world of comedy and performing, right? Like is that idea of what's the when you talk about a relationship with an audience to, you know, circle back to that for a second based on that comment. If the rave culture is a room full of people that, you know, you know are going to give you this, you know, just I mean, this love, this love that you need, this comfort that you need. Like comedy audiences can be like that. I mean, at their best, they can be like that, but they're not always like that. That's not the guarantee. That that's not what the bargain at the door necessarily that you've signed up for. Is there a different I, relationship? I see you didn't come to the uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival headliners show, 10 p.m. late show on Friday about uh, eight years ago. Is it the worst or best gig of all time? <laughs> I think it was. I was just trying to be specific enough. I don't even know if that was a. It bad would be show. great though if if it was real a memory because I mean that would not be a surprising no. thing to say, right? Like if you were just like, well, I remember this one night. Oh yes, no, there's. It's like that classic <laughs> joke. I'm sure you've you've heard this one, right? About the uh, the old comic eating at a diner. And Tell the, the me. Woman well, come. I mean, again, you're, we're going to go back to culture jamming in a second, so you can feel sure, this sure. in for the audience at home, even if I haven't. This maybe is the oldest stand-up joke in the world, but there's an old stand-up comic eating at a diner on the road somewhere in the middle of America and this by himself. And this woman walks in and she goes, oh, my God, you're that comedian, aren't you? And he goes, yeah, I do stand-up. He goes, five years ago, my husband died. I was at the lowest point in my life. I was contemplating suicide. And I came to your show and it changed everything. It made me realize that there's joy in life and there's a reason to live. And the comic looks up and goes... Was that the early show or the late show? <laughs> it shows you how how obsessively compa- uh, focused on a bad show we really are. Uh, yeah. So, what is the relationship between you and your audience? I've been thinking. I thought about it a lot during the um, pandemic. Obviously, when the audience went away, it made me think a lot right. about what is my relationship to the audience. Like, what is it that I specifically? And for me, I didn't miss any of the. Like, you know, there was none of that sense of, you know, some people like, I just got to get back in front of people and whatever. But I did get a real 
sense of I didn't want to do a lot of comedy that didn't involve people because I quite like having them there. That's for me, you know, I, I think a lot of the time is my show is second to like my show is the instrument I use to play the audience rather than me just going, here's this show that I want to present to you tonight. And, you know, and, but I'm interested in what you think and, and, and what your relationship with that, particularly that live audience is. What you're saying, Will, is uh, as close to the bone for me uh, when it comes to stand up as could be. I mean, it, so- it sounds like we have a-, a really similar feeling because that is, if I have any philosophy of comedy other than our job is to be funny, nothing more, nothing less, it can be more and can be less, but the real job baseline is funny, is that every audience has a story and that it's my, if I don't get it, because I do a lot of crowd work. That's a, a big part of what what I, I, I love. Like if I if I am having a good show, the, the better the show I'm having, probably the less written material I'm doing because I'm like experiencing this thing with the audience. If I ever miss the story, it's not because it wasn't there. It's because I failed to find it. And I that I do think that the reason that that is what makes me the most happy as a comedian is because I love people. Uh, bewildering though that may be, considering how people are, I like love them. I I want to know them. I want I I don't do crowd work just because it's what I'm best at. Although it 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 is something that I'm that I feel particularly good at. It's it's because I like I get joy from them, from the surprises that are there, from the from them being. I've never understood the kind of performance. Like, you know, I have friends who they want to perform in a spotlight and they want the audience to be invisible and they want to deliver their jokes for one hour and then leave and have a zoo. To me, there is nothing there uh, for me, not the way that because I watch them perform and I go, this is masterful and it's a whole different thing. It's so theatrical. It's so pre- presentational. It's just I want to be in a, in a conversation to like shake up what weirdness lies in that audience. Uh, so I love this. Like I love everything about what you're saying. I I can cook uh, by recipe. So if you gave me the ingredients and you gave me a good recipe, I'd, I'd be pretty good at being able to recreate that meal. But if there's a you know fridge and pantry full of like just random things and I need to make you something that I'm not the person to go to in that situation. But I admire people because I think when I that's what I think of as cooking. I can replicate, you know, something else, but that's like actually cooking. And in a comedy room, I like to cook, you know, I like to take, what have we got here tonight that we're never going to have again? And not just, are we never going to have it again, but we're never going to have this particular combination of things again. And in a world particularly, this is so much more important to me, I think even more now than it used to be, in a world where so many things are made for bulk sharing in, you know, here's, I'm going to work up my, you know, even the way sometimes we talk about, like, you know, people talk about working up their, like, special as if the idea is that eventually they'll get this thing, even though we know, of course, this is kind of part of it, right? But eventually they get this thing and everybody else up until that point is almost like practice to get this thing to this way that it will just be seen by the most people in exactly the same way. For me, that's the opposite of the thing that I find the best about our job, which is that tonight might be the best night. Tonight, right now, for these individual circumstances, 
we have the possibility to do something that is, you know, that will never happen again and that will there will be a magic in tonight that if in 10 years' time you say to me you went there for headliners at the uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival that night and you'll go, this is what happened, and I'll be like, I remember that. Yeah, I, I and the audience is creating the magic with you. Yes. They're running up to the cauldron and throwing an ingredient in there that you stir. Sure, you're the master tinkerer, but they, it can't be there without them too. And that, it's jazz. I mean, look, I hate saying it's jazz because, listen, I shouldn't ever say it's jazz when talking about my comedy, but that is what it is, you know? You go see a master improvisational jazz musician, that's the magic. It's like, I was there the night that this thing happened, and that idea... Oh, you you want to see something? You want to see something really impressive? Mm. The idea of that kind of this will never happen again, and it's happening just for us. To me, that's the essence of culture jamming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thought you'd like that. I mean, seriously though, that's some <laughs> that's some quality work that you've done there. Because because this is genuinely. You're right. It is. You're on point. It's about trying to take. So, okay. What we need here before we talk about this specifically is, if you don't mind, a, a brief history of culture jamming, if you could. Oh, that's so funny you ask. Um, I'd be happy to share a brief history of culture jamming. Well, I'll try to do this quickly. You know, in I think 1935, I, I, I'm, the date is missing, but Abby, Abby Hoffman took the world's first intentional LSD trip and went on his bike to ride around the city. And they call that Bicycle Day. And that is the acid revolution, right? The acid revolution spun out into a thousand different directions. The hippie movement, the uh, civil rights movement, turn on, tune in, drop out, all of that stuff. But one group of people in particular that was affected by uh, this kind of weird uh, psychedeloscape that was created when acid changed the entire psyche of the world was Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. And rather than go try to change the world, they thought, you know what, let's just get into a bus, let's drive across America, take a bunch of acid and go see what kind of weird shit there is out there. Like that's a worthy, it's a worthy endeavor. It's It's a wandering in the desert, but looking for weirdness. So they inspired a group in San Francisco called the Suicide Club, who were a secret society in San Francisco in the like 70s and early 80s, um, who said, we're not going to go looking for what might be randomly weird. We're going to create random and weird right here in front of us. We're going to create these kinds of experiences where, you know, they would uh, climb to the top of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and have high tea. Or they would, um, you know, all dress up in clown costumes and, and get on a bus. So they would they did all of these weird experiences so that the group, the members of the group could have this experience of bizarre rip, ripping yourself away from the normality of life and that that had its own value. That spun off into another group called the Cacophony Society who wanted to go a little bit more populist with it and say, rather than create these experiences just for the people inside of our secret society, let's go out into the world. Let's go make these things happen for for random people walking by so that we can make people, normal people's jaws drop and say, what the fuck did I just see? These people created... SantaCon, flash mobs, improv everywhere, uh, billboard liberation. When you look up at a billboard and it's been like almost, it's been recreated in almost exactly the corporate logo, but there's a subversive message in it. All of that is an outcropping of the Cacophony Society. And they did this for years in San Francisco. 
At the same time, in San Francisco, there was a guy named Larry Harvey who had this random idea to burn a statue of a man on the beach in San Francisco. He burned it. People came. They seemed to like it. The next year, double the size of the crowd came. The next year, it doubled again. The next year, it doubled again. And two weird things happened. Uh, two groups came to this burn uh, that would disrupt the experience of what Burning Man was forever. It was the San Francisco Police Department and the Cacophony Society. They heard about this burn and they thought, well, that sounds like a good time to us. Let's go see. The cops heard about it and thought, that sounds like a San Francisco ordinance violation, although nobody's written a specific law about burning a man on Baker Beats. We think it feels illegal, so let's go put a stop to it. They did. And the Cacophony Society stepped in and said... If you can't burn it here, we have been doing these weird things called zone trips where they would drive out to the desert or drive out to a random place and just have like a, a bizarro happening where the rules of normal life didn't exist. If you follow us with this statue, we can burn the man up there and we can see what mysteries lie beyond this invisible line in the sand. Um, and that's what they did. And so that feeling, that culture jamming feeling that what the fuck was that? What did I just witness? That to me is the magical like permeation that tells me that you will cannot read about it. It would be like me writing a, an article about a magical show I had one night at the Melbourne Comedy Festival Friday at 10 p.m. ago. You just should have seen it because I riffed this and then this guy riffed this and then there was a guy in the audience that did this. You go, I get it, but I don't. I didn't feel it because I wasn't there, man. Um, and so at Burning Man, being there is like exploded into 10,000 pieces. Like everywhere you go is kind of there when it's magical, when it's not a bunch of tech CEOs standing around doing cocaine off of an Estonian sex worker. Like it can be this feeling of magic. Like I'll tell you, there was a night once years ago where I was walking out, Burning Man is arranged like a clock. And the bottom uh, numbers, you know, from like 6 p.m. to, you know, the bottom of the clock, that's all heavily populated, all kinds of jaw-dropping, extreme kind of stuff. But if you walk out to 12 o'clock and beyond, there's almost nothing out there. It can, it's, it's, you know, it's very random. It's dark. It's cold. We were walking. It's called Deep Playa. That's what they call it. We were walking out there one night, me and a group of friends, and we saw like way out in the distance a, a single pale blue light. And we thought, well, let's walk towards a single pale blue light. Why not? That, that to me, that why not is, is like quintessential to Burning Man when it works. And so we walked out for about 40 minutes. We walked towards this pale blue light and we finally get up to it. And it's an old man who set up a miniature marionette set. And he's got a whole like theatrical backdrop. And he's doing a marionette performance for nobody in the cold of the desert. He did it for no one. He did it for whoever happened to walk by. Like he did it for us. And like that experience, that teeny experience is as meaningful to me as a thousand burning cars and big men on fire, like randomness and, and, and something for the sake of wonder alone is that is the magic of Burning Man. And that's what culture jamming is that feeling of what the fuck just happened. What did I just see? Okay, so the central conceit of this podcast, because, you, know, you know, just for the sake of having a conceit really, is that I ask people if they have a life philosophy of any kind. And we've talked around it a lot regardless. So it feels like a pretty natural place to ask that question. Do you have something that you can sum up as being a bit of a 
And by the way, an appropriate answer to this is no, but I'm going to, I will be shocked if your answer to this is no. It's not no. Uh, my philosophy, my religion uh, is fun. I want to wring the final drops of life out of the towel that was my, my universe as I'm going off to die. Like I want to experience every drop of existence that there is. I want to, I want to feel it all. I want to do it all. I want to meet everybody. Um, less so as I've gotten older, but still that is at the core of my being. Like I want, life is so impossible to imagine why we're here and to get through all the pain and suffering that is life that like, I don't want to waste any time not enjoying what life has to offer. And so, yeah, that's my philosophy is like, have fun. We have a, a, a family motto in my fam in my house with my kid. Uh, the Casher Legero family model is uh, work hard, try your best, uh, be kind and have fun. So how do you assess fun? Like, I mean, because that's, you know, be kind, you know, comes up a lot on the show when, when I ask people. And, you know, there's obviously various different versions of be kind. And, you know, be kind can be kind to other people. It can be equally be kind to yourself, you know, which sometimes, you know, is harder for people to do than be kind to other people or vice versa, depending on who you are and what circumstance you might find yourself in. But fun is the one that I think I wrestle with the most at the moment, which is what, what is, what is, what is fun? Like, how do you know when something, I mean, I, I know, right. but, you, but like, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, especially for people like us. And, and this is the theme in the book which is that we have decided to monetize fun. Mm. Like we've decided, like an artist's thing is like, I'm going to take the thing I love the most and I'm going to find a way to make it pay the bills. Yes. And that that action immediately um, uh, begins to poison the experience, mm. you know, because you have to do it and you're not doing it for its own sake. You're doing it in order to become a professional and or, in order to become successful, and especially with stand-up where it's like, God, I, if I could not say, like, look at me one more time in my life, like, I just, like, I can't, it's just so, it's too much. It's like, have you checked this out? I'm 44. I got a bunch of likes on this video. Like, and you can see the desperation in people as they, as they go deeper into the internetification of that. But I, I think the answer to that for me is like, when I got sober, I made this deal with myself that though, and I know how ridiculous this sounds because I was 15, but it really was the way my mind was working at the time, which was I got sober and I go, okay, I'm going to survive. You know, I will survive. I won't live, I won't die and I won't go to prison, but I'm just, there's, I'm not going to do anything anymore. Like, and, and I, I say in the book, like the, the manifestation of a thought like that is the product of a deeply diseased mind. Because if you stop drinking and getting high and you think, okay, well, I'll never do anything again, then what it, it presupposes is that the only thing that you do is drink and get high. And so I put down, as a very young person, the bottle and the bag, and I looked, I, 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 I thought, this is it, my life's over. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, you, you remember the king in, um, in the Lord of the Rings, the old spellbound king who all of a sudden, like, the spell lifted and he got his youth back, you know? You remember that? Like, that's how I felt. Like, I looked up at some point, maybe a year sober, and I just went, oh, wow, all of the other things in the world are available to me now. Mm -hmm. I just had to stop doing two things in order to access, like, all of the things in the world. And so I've tried in my life to, like, access those things. I mean, like I said, as I've gotten older, it's gotten smaller and simpler, and that's fun to me now, too. Like, to me now, uh, uh, the pleasure of, like, hanging out for the afternoon with my kid is is as good as any, you know, week-long rager at Burning Man. But what it has been about is the acquisition of new experiences and um, and just, like, continuing to to find out what mysteries there are in the world. I think that it's interesting, though, that so many of the cultures that you found yourself in still, uh, like, I mean, I can understand the idea of a 15-year-old drug addict getting sober and then, you know, taking up hiking or like like something where the sort of excesses or permissiveness or like drug culture, like, I mean, you, like, I mean, rave culture, Burning Man, stand-up comedy, like these aren't exactly areas where people are going, oh, what's that? You're trying to keep sober? Here's what we recommend to you. <laughs> We've got the perfect yeah. three worlds for you to occupy. <laughs> I Why them? I think that, well, this comes back to the, the thing that I said earlier about the worlds that I was born into. The two subcultures in the book that really aren't, it's a bit of a cheat to call um, Hasidic Judaism or deafness a subculture, but they really are, in the most literal definition of the word, a culture inside of, of a dominant culture. And they really are both worlds and universes that are marked by their outsiderness and their, uh, their, their different difference from the world surrounding them. And those were the worlds that I was born into. That was the bucket that I plopped into when I entered this world. And it gave me this feeling of like, these are the kind of people I want to surround myself with. Like, I want to surround myself with people that fought to be acknowledged, that fought to survive, that that are different and weirder and never quite accepted. Those are the people that I gravitate towards. And that, to me, is the through line between deafness and stand-up and raves and AA and Hasidic Judaism. It's all people outside the margins. Not only did you, the fact that you were born into that deaf world, um, yeah, result in one of the greatest comedy puns of all time uh, about... Uh, uh, but that I won't spoil. I'll let people discover in their own time. But uh, I, if we talk about that idea of where did I rank the chapter, chapters on what it is that I thought I would be more or less interested in, maybe this is like indicative of the whole point that is made in this chapter, which is that deafness is something that while I have an awareness of it, I do like each run I do at a festival, I always have an Auslan night, which is you know, the Australian Sign Language, but but do I know much about it really other than, you know, that sort of not really? No. And often when you don't know something about a particular group, you're like, oh, well, where's my level of curiosity? I, I You know, right. this is in my world. Like, you know, I do these shows that specifically I have a, someone signing on stage. I interact with them. I've been doing it for years. And yet my level of curiosity about this beyond – this moment, right, 
has not been, there has not been one. Like I haven't really looked any further. And so I think maybe it might have been my favourite chapter of the entire book, I think, because I just felt like there was constantly, firstly, the historical stuff around deafness and the development of language and, you know, the various competing interests when it came to, you know, the deaf world and, 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 and own self-determination in the deaf world and all this, like, I mean, you kept bringing up things as you tell this historical perspective that was, was blowing my mind. I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing this for the first time. And then, oh yeah, go on, please. Yes. No, please. Well, then I was just going to say that. I never want to stop that. But well, not just that I found that historically interesting, but then your journey through that world, again, you are the context, right, of this experience. And, you know, the context of you and your, you know, connection with that world and where you fit in is as accurate and interesting as it was in any of the other chapters. Well, I think that your lack of interest is indicative of you being a deep bigot. No, I'm joking. I think think that you're... No, no, no. I think it makes makes perfect sense to me. And it is in some ways the thesis of the chapter because the problem over 300 years is that uh, people understand deafness. And I'm not trying to say that deafness is the best disability, but it is unique in that the only way most people, uh, even to some degree me, Uh, even as a person who's intimately connected to the deaf community, was born into it and I'm a member of it. The only way we can see the deaf community is through the understanding we have of what they are lacking, Mm -hmm. which is hearing. And it's a a context of disability. So would I want to read a chapter about people who, you know, uh, have a club foot? It doesn't, it doesn't, it immediately strike me as like, here is a culture that I want to know about or need to know about. And like, but the, I think the real mystery of the deaf world is that the di- the disability is not the lack of hearing. And the dis- in my opinion, the disability was the consequence of the lack of hearing, cutting people off from language. From language comes culture. Um, that is uh, shared language is how we share ideas. It's how we communicate. It's how we reason. It's how we how we become aware. And and deafness, the disability, had this profound secondary effect for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, which is that it cut people off from spoken language. It cut people off from the ability to communicate, express themselves, tell you this is who I am. This is what I'm thinking. They had all of those feelings, but they were often trapped behind a veil of uh, inability to ex- to communicate. In fact, like if you were born deaf for, you know, millennia, for, for, for forever to a family where everybody else was hearing and you were the only deaf person in that world, then you were just stuck. You were just trapped behind a, a, a wall of linguistic isolation. And if you got lucky enough to be born in a family with genetic deafness, where two siblings had that uh, same disability, the inability to hear, that you were forced to default to this gesturing uh, language, the two of you could build a a language between each other that would sophisticate and would um, 
uh, uh, grow in, in complexity until you literally created a language, just you and your brother, just you and your sister, uh, just a, a language of two. By necessity, you would create this thing. And, and one day, a priest in France was walking along and saw two deaf sisters in that kind of circumstance that had created this language. And he said, oh, my God, like, literally, because he was a priest, he said, this is language. What I'm looking at is language. And he went to them and somehow told them, teach me. And they taught him to sign. And he taught them in the sign that they taught him French. And from that little seed created the French sign system, the first like recognized sign system in the world, and the French school for the deaf in Paris, which was the first uh, school of the deaf. And they started to gather, words started to get out. They would gather deaf people from France to come together and grab this language. And he would, as I describe it in the book, they were teaching him as much as he taught them. He taught them French. He taught them French in order that they might take the sacrament so that they might go to heaven, which I think we can agree makes sense. If there is a God, he's probably not letting people that can't say the sacrament into heaven. I mean, he's like, listen, I'm an omnipotent. No workarounds. Yeah, rules are rules. I mean, my hands are kind of tied here. What am I going to (laughs) do? But he taught them sign. They taught him sign. He taught them French. Yeah. And in this weird way, they, they reciprocated each other. They both learned and taught at the same time. And eventually, he started to do these road shows. He would go travel around France and Europe. And the road show would go something like this. An audience would sit in, in the crowd. And there would be a, a hearing administrator who would get a question from the audience. He would say, you know, someone ask a question and they would ask a question, some kind of French question, like, you know, how, what degree of suffering can be borne by man or how many cremes is too many cremes for a fresh brie. And he, they would ask the question. He would turn to the deaf students. He would sign it in French sign language and they would walk up to the chalkboard and write the answer in perfect French, you know, trois cremes. And the people would lose their fucking minds. They couldn't believe it. Like it had unlocked this idea of what deafness was from an, uh, a disability that kept you isolated to a, a world, to a language. And that language is what Thomas Gallaudet encountered when he f- came over from America. He met a guy named Laurent Clerc, who was a genius. Uh, uh, there's no other way to say it. This guy was a genius. He was the star student at the School for the Deaf in France. And he te- told him, come to America and let's set up a sign, sy- a, a, a sign system just like you set up here. Let's set up a school for the deaf there. He sailed uh, over to America from France. By the time he arrived, Gallaudet knew, America, uh, knew French sign language and Laurent Clerc knew English. This, Like I said, he was a genius. But they got there, they set up this sign system and this school, and that school system traveled across the United States to California to 300 years later. My mother, when she was 13 years old and languageless because Alexander Graham Bell had convinced everybody that sign was an inferior form of communication for the deaf, when she arrived at the school for the deaf where they still signed, my mother was able to learn and become fluent in American Sign Language in three months. Three months she became fluent in this language. How can you not say that this was her native language? And that was the language that she gave to me when I was a baby in my crib. And she was telling me, are you hungry? Or do you want a nap? Is your diaper dirty? That from, from those two sisters to that French priest, to Laurent Clerc, to Thomas Gallaudet, to the American School for the Deaf, to the ASL, to my mother, to my hands. That is the story of a culture. It's not the story of a disability. It's the story of a group of people that would not say no, would not accept a no, and would fight for their own liberation. That's a story of liberation that is way beyond disability. 
it's such a good story and you you tell it so well. You know, I mean, you you tell it so well even now. And yes, you did just drop Alexander Graham Bell in the middle of that. It is explained in the book. What a twist. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Didn't know. That's a whole other thing. But, but what I... So this brings me to the, like a question I have really about the book in general, which is when you sat down and you thought, here we go, this is another memoir, you know, part two, you know, what's happened next. And you've got your list and you've got your few subcultures that haven't made the cut. But with the ones that did, did you have a sense going into them how that they would fit together or did every sort of story of every, you know, subculture and your place within it unfold in independently. And then, I mean, I know this is a bit technical, this question, but if that's the case, talk to me a little bit about that. But then I'd like to know that if they all became in, came independently, when did they then become part of a, you know, more broad, cohesive narrative as well? So, like, can you tell me a little bit about how, how that all worked? I, I will say that, like, when I set out to write this book, I knew that it was about like this kind of question of what happened next, but I was struggling for a long time in writing it to like go, what's the, what's the thesis? What's what you're asking? What, what is the thing that brings these worlds together? I mean, I knew that I had six interesting stories because I'd lived in six separate universes that I intimately connected to these worlds that I found inherently interesting and hoped that other people would. But I was like, what is the connection? Obviously I'm the connection. Obviously my body is the connection, but what, what fits this stuff together? And I, what I started to realize was like, yes, that part about people on the margins. Yes. That part about, um, uh, you know, uh, these freaks, but then I started to realize like what this book was about was, destiny as a concept that exists only in hindsight that that even uh, universes as disparate as these six worlds that i lived in they all fit together but i had to get to the end or the middle of the road and look backwards to go oh i was on a path like oh this was an adventure oh this was luke skywalker you know uh vanquishing the 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 empire like I had to walk through all of these twists and turns of my life in order to be able to turn around and go, I see it now. Like life, you know, it's like uh, me and Pete Holmes were calling it um, spiritual plinko, you know, where your life is just slamming you from from thing to thing and you go experience to experience and you, you it feels so random and it is random but then you get towards the middle of your life and you go oh wow these random things that didn't feel connected like they all led me to this this me this like experience of life that that can only be seen from here and like that if you believe in god is like an unbelievable spiritual journey if you don't believe in god it's even more unbelievable because you go this was random and it led me here like this whole thing was just chance encounters and somehow it added up to a life. To me, that's the thesis of a book is like, is that hindsight is something that you see glowing behind you. Yeah. So what, how, how does it all get there? I mean, of course, that's too big a question to ask anybody and you've, you know, but if, if it is a God, it almost makes, when you put it like that, it almost makes more sense that it is a god, and I'm person. I'm a like you know. What I mean, like if you if you were just pitching this to me, I go here are your two scenarios. 
it all works out like this. And one is that it's just a bunch of random chance and we're an accident in the corner of the universe that happened to evolve in a way that has resembled this and everybody has their own, you know, but it it feels too magical to just be that, even though if you were to ask me blunt the question, do I think there's a God? No, I don't. Do I think we're an accident in the universe? Yes, I do. Like, And yet when you fill in those details as you just did then, so how do you, exp- like, what's your take now? You talk about in the book the idea of, like, you know, you start with AI and the idea of that, you know, that part of the, you know, the message or the the structure of AI is, you know, surrendering yourself to a higher power of some kind and you're allowed to define that in whatever way you might want to define that. But what 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 do you think it is all about? How, why, I know this, it's a big question, Moshe, I'm so no, sorry. No, but I just... My primary response to what you're saying is like, why, I'm not that you're saying this for, I'm not sure if you're saying this. Why does the chance encounter feel less magical than the deity drawing you there the whole time? They both to me have this like unbelievable impossibility to them. Like, you know, like you start to study like astronomy, not that I've done a lot of that, but like even the circumstances of us being alive at all, like that were the perfect amount of length from the sun with the perfect amount of atmosphere. And then we had the perfect evolutionary conditions. And then the dinosaurs didn't win because they happened to get meteorited. And then instead the mammals started to, to evolve. And then they crawled out of the, the muck and they started running around. And then the monkeys came and then the apes came and then the apes evolved. And then the apes started to, to get smarter because they ate mushrooms and or ate fatty foods. And then they started to create language they started to communicate and then they started to create societies and farming and capitalism and then all of a sudden will anderson is on stage uh, in uh, in cambridge like what the fuck like that's the craziest most unbelievable story in the world that's so magical and you go home to who, you, the people you love and you you have the food that you delight in and we have this conversation on a podcast and like if you would take it a left turn you would be a mechanic in perth and I would be a social worker in Portland. We never met. We don't get to experience any of this. My daughter's not sitting upstairs. Like to me, with or without a deity, that's a magical fucking story. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter to you that there's no explanation for it. Like, as in like, you can live in the, in the peace of, or, you know, that in that sentence that you have just said then, your your good recap of the history of the world. It was good. Very good. Very <laughs> brief history of the world. I enjoyed it very much. But Well, you, I love that. You, you must love that it ends with you. I mean, well, of course it we're does. All, as as we all think that you. it ends to me. And, this, and, of course, when I ask you this question, really I am asking, like, what am I doing with the miracle of all that? You know, that is you know, at the heart of all these questions. I, when I ask you, I'm interested in what you have to say, but of course I'm also running it through the prism of I read your book and I see you have these experiences and I wonder, I challenge myself, am I am I having enough fun? Am I living in these uh-huh. moments enough? Am I thinking too much about why and wherefore and looking at things from the sidelines rather than being part of the experience? And so I wonder if like being part of the experience, being in the moment, genuinely, not not in this in the sort of I've you know, uh, you know, knitted it into your pillow or something like being in the moment, but to actually take part, to not you know be a spectator in the Burning Man language of it all. Is there like the moments you know when you're like, yes, I'm in it and I'm living it and I'm experiencing it, but also that stepping away from it, looking back in it. I mean, you've just written a book. There must be some aspect of. You, 
is it enough that it has all just happened and you find stories and meaning in it? Or in your mind, is there some longing to know whether there's some more to it? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm obviously presenting myself as like this kind of author of the book who has had these great revelations. And I did by writing the book. I mean, I really did have these revelations. But a lot of the time, like every other person, you know, I sit around going like, you know, we talk about the magic of stand-up. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I'm sure you have, where you just go, really? This is what I decided to do? Like, I decided to just get up and like make crude jokes with an audience and like, that's my life mission. That, that's what I'm doing with it. Or I, I mean, think I like- think about that all the time. I mean, literally, I was like, my parents. I've I've been trying to work on this bit that how I am is not my parents' fault. And I like uh-huh. you know, like, like my therapist keeps trying to blame my parents for stuff. And I'm like, I actually like once they were done with me, I was good. Like I graduated school well. I was well prepared for the world. Like I was like they did. They nailed it. Like it's the next 30 years when I've been left to my own decisions where shit has like gone off the rails a little bit. And but so yeah, go on. Isn't that the perfect kind of summation of a life? It's like, well, you're a huge success. Like, and you're the envy, you're the envy of so many people in your in your creative field, and you're at the top of the mountain going, ugh, the view. <laughs> I'm over it. This no, view. I, I'm like, like, should I have no, done something I, else with my life? No, like, I know. You know what I mean? I'm, like, I'm not. I mean, I'm rather not than trying to tell it. people dick jokes for an hour and a half, no. you know? I, b- believe me, I relate. I feel the same way. That's what, like, there is an inherent dissatisfaction. Okay, I think this is what it comes down to. Uh-huh. There is an inherent dissatisfaction in the human condition. There is an inherent desire to make meaning out of things that aren't meaningful. What mm-hmm. I don't know who it was that say human beings are meaning-making machines. Yeah. And I and that is true. And I don't think that doesn't take away the magic of it. But there is also an inherent dissatisfaction of life because we probably because we know like we're on a conveyor belt and like it ends and it's going to be over. And especially as you get older, you go, I'm vested. Like there's no pivot point. I, I'm past the pivot point. I this is what I'm doing. It is it is dick jokes. It's going to be dick jokes until the end. You know what I mean? And so you start to go, you start to go. Well, what what have I done here? And 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 that is that's such an easy trap to fall into. But like Burning Man, to get back to that, like if the actual burning of the man has any actual meaning to me, and it mostly doesn't. But if it does, when I look at that thing burn, it's a giant four-story statue of a man. What I'm reminded of is our impermanence, how how briefly we're here. And while I'm here, like the the, the lesson of culture jamming is in my bones. It's like while I'm here, I wanna like, I wanna experience stuff. I wanna like enjoy life. And it doesn't mean I need to be at a rave every night or seeing a fucking you know, a silk acrobatic performance of fire breathers. I don't need that. In fact, I don't even want that really anymore. My life has gotten a lot simpler as I've gotten older. And I I get a lot of of joy and meaning out of just hanging out on a beach or just like uh, going for a surf or going for a hike. Like things are simple. I don't need, fun doesn't mean rage. Fun means to me, like I want to be present in the miracle that is my life, if I can, you know, do I think that the miracle was created or did I happen to fall into it? I I guess I don't, I'm more probably on your side than um, my brother who's a rabbi's side, but I'm somewhere in the middle. And it, it doesn't matter because like, 
the other option, the other option is not existing at all. So this is a lot more fun than my parents having sex on Tuesday instead of Monday and me being my sister and me never existing, you know? Uh, so it's something you referenced before. I, yeah, I, I'm always, scenes change, things change. Like that's part of the theme of the book as well is that, you know, you, you, you are talking about different cultures at different points in their culture right? Like in their subculture, you know, things that were subcultures that become predominant cultures in the case of rave music is a very good example of like, you know, that that style of music went from something that was incredibly underground to something that is incredibly ubiquitous and like, you know, all over the place. And so stand-up comedy, you know, it, it has its moments of that as well. And, you know, we're in a different moment. You talked about that idea of, so <clears throat> I, this is more a selfish conversation, but this sure. is all the selfish conversation and like you've just reassured me that I should be having fun and I want to have fun by talking <laughs> to you about this particular Let's thing. I'm going to be in it right now for me. Um, I'm interested in uh, the ubiquity of crowd work videos online as someone who, because you're like me, have often, I mean I do specific crowd work shows and they are not, I don't think they are of the style that you see like online. Like, you know, in fact, one of the things I love about those shows is that they are entirely for the audience there that night. And often the best stuff is never about the individual, you know, uh, interaction that I have or that one line or that one moment that would be to misrepresent what is good about those shows. It is actually me putting all these things into play and then weaving them together and playing them off against each other, or maybe even bringing them all like, you know, that they become, you know, all the, pots and pans that you have on the stove and you, you know, tending to each one and combining things and tasting and you're cooking. And, and so the thing that we, and I think that, you know, I, without putting words in your mouth, I think that's much more the way that you go about it as well. And so now that the thing we have been doing for so long in private, in our own way, in this artisanal, you know, uh, you know, brain to stage sort of way that we were doing. And now it's become a, this very commodified, different, being advertised very differently to what it is that we do. Have you, I mean, do you have any thoughts about that, well, I guess? And, and being served very differently yes, as well. It's a, it's, right. it's a different, it's a different product. Like I, I, I'm, I have a little uh, Gen Z helper as I think we all should at our age. Um, and he cuts videos together for me and he goes, yeah, your, your, your stuff. There's so many callbacks yeah. to other people that you were talking to. It's hard to, to zip them down into these little bite-sized nuggets. And it's like, that's because we're not serving nuggets. You know, we're serving pheasant under glass. But by the way, I I don't begrudge the 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 crowd work clip upfication because I know they saw something we didn't. Like we thought, I thought, like just what you're saying. This is a magical potion that I'm serving this audience this night. And the beauty of it is that at the end of the night, it goes into the incinerator and nobody else ever gets to experience it. And I think that's true. Like the audience knew that, you know, before the, the internet, the audience knew like, wow, this is just for us. No one else gets this. And it's a, it's a gift, a temporary gift for us only. And now they saw, oh, but you're throwing away like magical shit again and again and again yeah. over decades, like just dumping it for no, yeah. and we could actually take it, put part of it out mm. and create a, 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 a business model with it. So I, I admire them in that. Like, I wish I had had the, the idea 
15 years ago, like, oh, I could tape every show I ever do and just start putting these things out. But what you're saying is right, that the, 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 like the, the dialectic between virality and crowd work has started to adjust what crowd work is. And I remember, you know, I was at the show once and there was this guy on stage, like frenetically, like, I mean, he was just, it was crazy. I couldn't figure out what he was doing. He was just like going to one guy, blah, 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 blah. What, do, what do you do for a living? No, okay. He grab another. He grabs a woman, gr- brings her onto the stage, puts her hair on his hair. He's like dancing around with her hair on his head. Like, what the fuck is this guy doing? And I turn around and there's like a, you know, $8,000 camera set up. I go, oh, he doesn't care about this show at all. He's trying to like, just like scattershot, get this viral clip going. And and then the ma- the clip come. I don't know if the clip was magical, but then when they get that right clip, it feels like magic. Um, but I think like it's a different it's a different dish. You know, it's it's not yeah, for the I'm crowd. Not, yeah, I'm not judging either. Like because I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And the last thing I'd want to be is one of those old people who's like, you know, you're not doing it the right way, right? Like people do things right. in different ways. But I do like to talk to you about this because. I can't talk to everybody about this and exactly what you're saying. I mean, I'm, this is why I wanted to talk about this with you because they've taken it from something that just, again, not a value judgment, just a different change in perspective, which is it used to be, or in the way that we looked at it previously, it was just for the room there that night for that particular group of people. And what you're talking about with this guy on stage, you know, with the hair over the top of the head He's literally saying to the audience, this isn't for you. This is yes, for no, somebody else, right? Like, this you know, is for like, millions fact, of people, yeah. but not you. Yeah, <laughs> Specifically but not, you. not you. Yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. It will be seen by a lot of people. They're not here. They didn't bother yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah. They're going to watch it on their phone while they're sitting on the bus, but it is not for you. And that's just a change of perspective or that, like, com- that relationship with the audience. Uh, well, I always felt about crowd work, like, you know, I don't know if it's the feeling is as strong in Australia or not, but there was this like before this uh, clip syndrome began, there was this idea that stand up was a crutch, uh, that that crowd work rather was a crutch for people that didn't have material. Mm. And I always thought that's because you've never seen Todd Berry do it or Patrice O'Neill do it or, or will do it or me do like there, there is bad comedy in every form. There are bad written jokes. So you can find them on in any city in the world at any given night. And there are people that are, you know, ma- master craftsmen of the thing. And so it is a little bit funny that um, the thing that was already derided has become this. This people now think that it's a it's a gimmick in order to sell tickets to a real show. And it's like that breaks my heart a little bit because yeah. I, I'm like you, like. To me, uh, we're like magic thread spinners, you know, and that is it, it to me, that is the, the power of of the immediate. And yeah, I, I so I am simultaneously like I yes, I respect the the young vibe. And I'm also like an old man going like, but you should have seen it when I do think, though, that I mean, this is the way I'm, I'm choosing to reframe it in my own heads is that, um, and I, did, I am aware that I said heads then, despite the fact that I only have one head, but I um, I think that I've noticed in the shows that I've done particularly recently that my ambitions for elevating them are even higher than they have previously been because I do think that general level of 
it's like when the internet came along and suddenly every first thought joke was already made online, right? Like if a yeah, topic yeah, was, yeah, yeah. if you were going to talk about any topic, you just had to assume that any first thought joke had been done a thousand times online already. And so it kind of actually stripped all those first thought jokes out of everybody's acts, right? Right, right. And, and, and you know, I think that there are times even when I think that I'm doing this like elevated form of improvisational stand-up where, you know, there could be a quite traditional execution around someone's job or relationship or whatever sure. that you do in the middle of it all. Whereas what I have found since this is that any time it was going, it ever goes towards something that you feel like is a bit generic or that somebody else could do, my immediate instinct has always been to go, all right, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to ask a question that is so far away from whatever this question was or go, take this in like a, a wild other direction. And while that's not always like immediately successful, I do think that the, that elevates the work of it more. So maybe, again, this is maybe one of those things where you're like, well, this, maybe this is great. Because maybe like the fact that it's a magic trick that you can do it isn't enough anymore and you have to see if you can not only it's magic that you do it, but it's like I just – the trick isn't just that I did it. It's really what I did with it and what journey I could take you on over this show or, or what we could do tonight in this format that I couldn't have executed in, you know, a, another show. Like sometimes – now, when I'm doing one of these shows, if I find one person who's interesting, instead of like the night being, I'm going to talk to eight people or 15 people or whatever it might be, like we're, we're talking. This is it. I'm yeah. just going to talk to you and the whole show will be some version of this, you know. Well, I love that idea. And that, that is the way that you're supposed to deal with uh, the, the impending threat of a changing culture is you're supposed to allow it to uh, light a fire under you and make you even better. Like in AA, they would always say, uh, grow or go. And, and that was the imperative. If you're not growing, you're going. And I think that's true for the artistic journey too. Like I, 100%, like my ego said and says, when people go like with all these clips going, oh, I hate when the comic just talks to the crowd. My thought often is you haven't seen me do it. I don't think you'll hate it when I do it. Like I do think there's some part of 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 us who care. I always loved comics like you who care and 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 can articulate what is valuable and what is beautiful and magical about the crowd interaction experience. And like, I love what you're saying. Like the idea that, Viral clips would make you 20 years, I don't know how long you've been doing stand-up, into the game, go, even I have to, like, I got to do better. I I, I want to be that too. Like, I always want to be evolving. Uh, so, Moshe, I know that we've, um, uh, you know, uh, only got sort of 15 minutes or so left and I've got some standard questions that I'd like to ask Let's at the it. end of. Uh, so this one's pretty simple, but like best or worst or both, but um, – Best or worst piece of advice that you've ever received? I love a bad piece of advice, but sometimes they don't stick with people. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it can be a good one in the world of stand-up, but it might be in any area that you've been in in your life. Have you ever got like a really bad piece of advice? And if not, I'll, I'll take a good piece of advice. Okay, that's pretty good. Let me see if I can um, give you uh, uh, six, one from each oh, world. Yes, that I think, I could, pro- I, think yes. I could probably do that. Um, okay. From 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 AA, my old sponsor used to say, and this is, I don't know if this is, this is the philosophy, uh, talk about a, a philosophy, this is what it always boils down to. I would call this guy 30 times 
and he would have the same advice 30 times. It's always show up, do what's in front of you, let go of the results and pay attention. That was the only, basically the only thing he ever said. This is my great spiritual leader. Basically, mm-hmm. that's all he ever said. Show up, do what's in front of you, let go of the results and pay attention. So that was pretty heavy advice. In, um, in, in Judaism, uh, a, a phrase that keeps coming to mind I don't know if this is advice, but I think it's like a, there's a powerful idea. We're talking about like spaces in the worlds that we that we occupy. There's a rabbi that once said, um, uh, "Some men have hearts of stone, and some some stones have the hearts of men." And when I think about like the the spaces, the physical spaces that have transformed me, the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center, where my first rave was, the Black Rock Desert, um, you know, uh, um, the first time I did a job interview with a, a, a for a sign language as a sign language interpreter, where a blind and deaf woman who was my boss held my hand and felt tactily whether or not I could sign at the level I needed to. Um, all of these places, like, I, you know, when it comes to having fun. Like I also understand the world historically and like the experiences I've had are contained inside of the, uh, inside of stand a stand up stage, a microphone. So being present in the spaces that I'm in, that's pretty good. Uh, for raves. I mean, I think honestly for burning man and raves, it's, uh, the idea that experiencing life for its own sake without any deeper meaning is powerful and to keep dancing as, as long as you possibly can. Um, have I missed one? Have I missed one? Was there one uh, raves? That I... Did we do raves? We did raves. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. Keep we did dancing. raves. We did Burning Man. We did. Don't be a spectator in your own life. Yes. Be a participant. Um, yeah, we did. Uh, I, yeah, I think we, we did them all. I think we did them all. So that's pretty good. That's pretty that's good. Pretty and, good. And, and in stand up, somebody once said, um, "You're only in competition with yourself," mm. and I took that really seriously. Uh, and uh, the other great bit of advice in stand-up I got was that you're not a stand-up comedian. You are, um, com- you are. That is one thing you do. Your com- your product is comedy, mm-hmm. and so it's allowed me to write books and do stand-up and act. And just like you, just like all of us, like I've always thought that though. It's like I'm not in competition with the most successful person in my Instagram feed. I'm in competition with my own work ethic. And is there something in like to extend that question out? Is there something that you aspire to be capable of doing like, and it doesn't have to be like, I I don't, the way, the reason I phrase it that way is it doesn't have to be some huge career achievement. It could be quite a small, for me, literally like, I mean, this is an example. This isn't the example I would use if I was being asked this, but I'd love to listen back to my shows. I've just never been a person who's been able to do it. I, I record them all. It is like a, incredible unlistened to library of space taken up on my phone is the recordings of all my shows that I will never listen to. Like, but I think it's something that at some stage in my life, if I really want to push myself artistically, I should commit to a period of time where I go, okay, you know what? Just for three months or whatever it is, listen to your shows and see, have you read the, um, uh, Rick Rubin book on creativity? Are you familiar no, with this I've book? No, but I've heard him talk about it a lot. It's so good, man. Like, I like yeah. honestly, it's because it's more about the philosophy of creativity. I think there'd be a right. lot of it that you really respond to. I think you would really dig it. And I, you and I are like the same. I'm the same <laughs> way. I've always wanted to be a guy that listened back to my shows, mostly because other people do it, and I go, mm. "That must be the right way to do it." I've ne- I've never I've never done no. it. No, no, but <laughs> I record them. 
But like, <laughs> that's like the, the futility isn't the, like, I know that I'm never going to listen to them. I just think if it's you, amazing that every night I still go out there and push that little record button. There's no need if to you do look, that. I'm not as disciplined as you. If you look through my voice memos, you would see like one month periods over the course of a decade where it'd be like, record, record, record. And then I just go, what am I doing? I'm not doing that. And then I just move on. But yeah, I would like to, you know what? I, I got advice for you. Yeah. Hire a, a Gen Z guy or girl to follow you around to these magical shows. Just hire, just hire a little, you know, um, androgynous Seinfeld dressed Gen Z kid with a $9,000 uh, camera rig and steal some of that magic. You got to become one of these cloud work kings. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do need to get some young person to sort out my life, my online life, yeah. because I am certainly <laughs> not the person who's going to be able to sort out my online no, life. Nor should you be. My advice definitely wouldn't be, Will, you need to get way more online. Yeah, I mean, no. I, can't, I can't, we just can't do it, man. I mean, it's not for us. No, no, no. I, I spent an entire year offline completely last year. And I had to you. dip my toe back in to plug some stuff, you know. And do you even know that, about tick? Go on. Do you know about tick uh, about TikTok's interface? Have you ever looked at TikTok? Never looked. So that so you know when you there's always the tick there's always a platform that everyone goes to where you're like, I think this I is where I think it's time for me to go home, guys. <laughs> yep. You carbon you carbon date yourself. You put your astronaut helmet off and just fly off towards Andromeda. Yeah. I'm with you. Apparently, TikTok is almost impossible to figure out intuitively. And it's on purpose so that we stay off of it. Yes. It's for people like us to look at it and go, oh, I can't do it and just throw the phone so that so that we don't muck up the place with our age. Yes, it's also so no one can hack it and, and sell the tricks of hacking it as well, though. As in, I mean, right, hack, right. hack fair, the... Fair. Like, so as soon as somebody gets really successful doing something on one platform now, they change the way that that person... Because you see it all the time. Somebody has success doing something. The crowd work thing is 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 part of this, right? But it happens in all sorts of industries and whatever. The the the, the early adopter comes in; they have success doing it a particular way, and then, unbeknownst to all the people who then try to copy that exact same way, the infrastructure and algorithm has been changed so that that, that right, way doesn't right. work anymore. So. Again, we need to go higher. You need to go down to the harbor. Where do you live in Melbourne? <laughs> I'm in Melbourne. Just today. go down the. Yeah, go down to the harbor with a sign, you know, yeah. need, need young person, need Gen Z help, stat. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, yes, I, I'm going to ask that question. So I, I used to, Moshe, the closest I ever had to an inspirational saying, it used to sit on my desk. It was on a little piece of uh, uh, metal and it was carved into that piece of metal. It said, uh, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And um, the reason that it was there was just, I mean, it was always, I've I've always been a person who, who has tried to push myself into the space of going, what is it that I would actually like to do? Imagine that it's already successful, you know, and what is it that I would like to be successful doing? Like what would, is there anything that you, I mean, I'm interested to ask you that question. Is there something that you haven't attempted to do that you would attempt to do if you knew you couldn't fail at it? Um, yeah, I mean, I would love this is another example of younger comics and you guys in Australia have been ahead of the curve on this, but like my whole bent on stand up for so long was just uh, a product of the people that were my heroes when I started. And it was just, you know, I started in the early two thousands. And so, you know, it was just be a killer, be a killer. Mm -hmm. And I think the younger generation are doing these like really, really thoughtful, interesting hours in ways that are super theatrical and super uh, abstract and different and bizarre. And I would love to, 
for at least one of the our specials that I put out to feel like that. Um, so I would I would do that. I would love to write a musical. Uh, uh, that's something that I've always wanted to do, but been just yeah. decided I I don't know how to do that, and so I haven't done it. I would love to write a play because that's where I started. Uh, originally, before I, I was even going to be a stand-up, I thought I was going to be a playwright. And once I found stand-up, again, I felt like I had this superpower, this like magical tool, this like knife of like just the sharpness of comedy, that that stuff kind of, you know, just, I mean, I'm a, I, I, I write movies and TV and stuff, but like that kind of like art, artsy for its own sake kind yeah. of st- part of my life has, uh, has gone in a different direction and I would love to do that. Well, I mean, I, the, yeah, I, that doesn't uh, surprise me at all. And the, the one person show thing, you know, this sort of, and not in the American sense of that, but more the Australian European sense of one person show, Edinburgh show, Melbourne show, that sort of thing. I mean, of course you would love to do that because every chapter of this book, you know, the six chapters are six one-person shows. I mean, they could also be all combined into one one-person show, but if you were on the Australian or, you know, Edinburgh model, that that would be six years of your Melbourne or Edinburgh yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah, It'd yeah. be the you year would... about you being a Hasidic Jew and there's the year about your rave culture and there's the year about, your, you know, that would be what the shows would be and how you would structure those sort of shows. I think you naturally have a style of storytelling that that arc and this is what the book is to bring it back to the book and I do highly recommend it. We've talked a lot about some of the stuff that's in it but there's so much more to it because in each of these chapters you really do look, you know, at sort of the historical, you know, like sense of that, you know, how you would and this is again, like if I was, if you're doing like a Melbourne show, these are the things you'd bring to it. Here's my story through the show. Here's me in this world. Here's what this world is about. Like there's so much of you creating that within this book. I highly recommend it to people. I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation and I'm so glad that I had an excuse to immediately, uh, you know, listen to it all as well. Like often, you know, the deadline of having this conversation means that I don't dip in and out of a chapter here and there. I, really did over three days, you know, consume the whole thing from start to finish. And so it felt very present in my thoughts and and in my world. I have two more questions, Moshe, and then we are done with today. Um, uh, if you could wake up tomorrow, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You're just going to wake up and you have a skill. You're going to oh, identify easy. the skill. It can be whatever skill you want in the entire easy. world. But what is it? I want to rip, brother. I want to rip. <laughs> I want... I want, I want to be in the in the the, the barrel. Yeah. I, I want to be the. A, I want to rip, but I do not believe I will rip. But I will mm-hmm. say that being a guy that started old surfing, I have this other superpower that all of my friends who started when they were young and now have gotten bad because they're old don't have. I've never been good. Yeah. So I'm like, this is great. I'm better than I've ever been. All my friends have been surfing since they were 15. They're like, my body's falling apart. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, I'm peaking right now. I'm peaking. So I would love to to be to be good at that. I mean, I, I'm tempted to um, say something that would make me a million dollars, but the truth is, like, I, 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 I yeah, I just want to rip. Yeah, I can. I mean, is surfing? I'm um, I'm so because I love the ocean, but I've never been a surfer and. 
I'm fascinated because when you say, you know, part of the reason you talk about you contextualize it yet again, which is that idea that you had friends that were good at it and then are not as good at it. That is the frustration. And I sometimes worry about that with comedy because, you know, like everyone, I'm always like, God, will I retire at some stage? Will I stop doing this? You know, what is it that I'm going to do? And it's one of those things that having been good at it or on the, you know, had achieved some level of competency in it at the very least, I don't want to get bad at it. I know what it would feel to get bad at it and I don't want to get bad at it. I'd like to remain to be like some level decent at it. Whereas, you know, there's those people who never got to that point who would just keep doing their little open mics or whatever because sometimes, even though they're not good in general, occasionally you can have that moment, that joke or that one night when it works. Like, is surfing like that? Is there, as it, like, yeah, because you, you can still catch a bit of a wave, right? Or you can have a bit I, of that, that, that insight to what it would be like to, to rip, to be in the barrel. Well, I can tell you that surfing, for me, has this, contains this great life mystery, which is, it is, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, it is the only thing I have ever done with as much, um, discipline and uh, commitment that I have been terrible at. My whole life, I have only ever Mm -hmm. gone towards the thing because, you know, it's not just about fun. In some ways, my book is like a drug addict's memoir of finding drugs while sober. You know, Rave was my drug. Burning Man was my drug. The stage is my drug. But I only would have done it if if the, the high felt good. And with surfing, I'm not gifted. I'm what I always describe myself as Whatever the opposite of talented is, I have that with surfing. So there's some thing inside of me that allowed me to keep doing it. I'm now at a point where I can, I can, I'm, I can have a good time most of the time when I go out. I can enjoy myself. Why did I keep doing it? It's like there is a mystery inside of that. Why my ego was able to, to keep going on this thing that I love because my whole life has been uh, pleasure principle is uh, immediate gratification. And this is the opposite of that. I feel stupid. I feel silly. Sometimes when I'm surfing, well, I'll think about comedy literally. And I'll go, at least I'm good at that as I'm paddling for a wave. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One, one final question and we're done. I have a time machine. I can take you to any point, uh, in either the future or the past. Um, it is a, a one way round trip. Um, for the purposes of this hypothetical, um, you have no social responsibility. This is, you know, you don't, as I often put it, you don't have to go back and kill Hitler unless your greatest desire in life has always been to kill Hitler, in which case I'm not here to stand in the way of that. But, you know, let's assume that we've sent someone back to deal with the Hitler situation. You can just do whatever it is you want to do. Um, What would you like to do? So we're not trying to write a historical wrong. We're trying to, I'm trying to go have some This is fun. just for you. This is literally like, you know, a weekend trip. Like we're using, I'm down, I, 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 the time machine has been so effective at solving problems that like, right. you know. We're not doing that. That on the weekend, we're just letting some friends have a go to go and have a look at either the future or the past. Where would you like to go? I mean, I gotta say, I would like, I, I probably would choose to go like, 10,000 years in the future and 10, see if we made it. I mean, I would just, well, I would 10,000 is optimistic. Like, why? Well, yeah, it would suck if I got there and it was just like an exploded <laughs> wasteland. I was like, wait, can I, is it possible to go 8,000 years back? Like, no, sorry. Maybe? No, <laughs> <laughs> we're out of fuel, brother. We- <laughs> 
Oh man. Yeah. All right. That seems. You're right. That wasn't a well. That wasn't a strategically wise. Decision. I mean, even the concept that you could communicate with somebody ten thousand years more advanced than you are is optimistic. I, if I got there and we were still there, I would feel so much better about the future that I'm leaving my daughter. Mm. I would come back and I go like, yeah, it's going to be mean, okay. I mean, even but- again, if, if what you're concerned about is the future you're leaving your daughter, we're talking 150 years, like 200 years okay. is, is fine okay. to yeah. get a, get a right, vibe right, on right. that. Like 10,000 no, true. not going to tell you anything go- about what it's going to be like for your daughter. <laughs> I go 80 years in the future yeah. and she's still alive, but she's just like a cybernetic creature posting crowd work <laughs> clips. Like everybody's posting crowd work clips. That's all that there is to the future. All right, fine. I'll go back in time. I'll go back in time. 10,000 years with my family uh-huh. to, uh, to an island and just chill with no other human beings and crack coconuts. Uh, thank you so much for doing the show today, mate. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it too, Will, and I, 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 it was, it's like a, a neat experience to see someone that you haven't seen in years and go, ah, I miss seeing you around. Like you, 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 you don't feel it until, you see, until I saw you. I go, I miss seeing you around, and I, I was just so grateful to have this conversation. Uh, thank you, mate. Uh, it's funny that I think that part of what I enjoyed about all this was, because, I mean, it's not like we were, you know, close, close friends or anything. You know, we just like, you know, did gigs together, right? But always yeah. had a great affection for you. Have always thought you were a really f- fabulous comedian and interesting person. But to get to spend not just these two hours with you, but to spend three days, you know, really feeling like that you were inside my head, and it was, it was a really nice, you know, voice to have in my head for a while as well. So thank you so much for doing this, and I hope people really enjoy the book, and I hope it's super successful, mate. I super appreciate that. Oh, wait, can I tell people about my podcast? Yes. I want these Australian I people. I mean, yes, and also, yeah, tell people about your podcast. And uh, for anyone who's watching some of the video of this, you're about to see uh, there's been a subliminal advertising in the background oh, of the that. shot anyway. You know, people will love that. But we do, my wife and I, Natasha Leggero, do a podcast where we give relationship advice and hear people's deep, dark secrets. Maybe you could come on, Will, sometime. If you're ever back in the States or we could use the power of the internet. Oh but um, it's called the Endless Honeymoon Podcast, and uh, I love doing that. I love hanging out uh, and having fun, as you as you know. But honestly, Will, this was um, super, super nice to get to know you better, too. I feel like we're more similar than I realized before we started this conversation. I mean, we've both always had pretty great hair, Moshe, and I think that, that really bonded us together most of the time. We were just I remember your hair, and it's chumps. kind of sad. Kind of sad we're both wearing hats. We're uh, keeping our glory and majesty from the people. But yeah, thanks yeah, for yeah. having me, Will. I'm, I'm rocking a real midlife crisis mullet at the moment. So. I did that. Yeah. I, I had one of those. It was. It lasted about a week. I did a panel show, and uh, Ed Gamble said he, it gives you something to hold on to while you fuck me, and I went ahead and cut it off. So. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Listener.